what I am calling the church to. Two things, and I'm going to repeat it. I'm going to take us through the, whole, the entire experience of pastoral callings. First you hear it, and then you think that would be a good idea. And then you hear it, and you, you feel guilty because you're not doing it. And then you hear it, and you wonder, when is this guy going to stop talking about this? And then you hear it, and you go, I better get on this, because it sounds like he's not going to stop. And then you hear it, and you go, I'm glad I'm doing this, because now I don't feel guilty that he's talking about it. And then he talks about it, and you're like, I'm really glad he started talking about this, because I'm doing it, and this is a good thing. And then you hear it, and then you think, he can probably stop talking about it, because we're all doing it now. And you notice that's kind of how it goes. And so I think we're in that phase of probably people starting to think, I better get on this because it sounds like he's not going to quit on this. But this is what I'm calling the church to. I'm calling the church to two things. I'm calling the church to a life where every day you're connecting with God and the Word. That's what I'm calling us to. And again, it's not a challenge. This is not something you want as an accomplishment. Like, for instance, if you're in a close relationship, like a marriage with somebody, and you and your wife just have a long talk and at the end you pull out your book and you go who just did the listen to you for 15 minutes challenge your your wife is not happy with you right <laughs> who are you doing this to? oh me and the guys whoever does the most listening wins a prize you're like i will make you a bed on the porch for you to sleep in tonight So this is not a challenge, not an accomplishment. Um, Being with the Lord is one of the greatest gifts of this life. That the God of the universe would welcome us into his presence in prayer and in, in a relational Bible reading. This should be the best part of our day. And I know that stuff happens. Sometimes the coffee doesn't kick in in time. But being with our Father and Christ through the Holy Spirit should be the best part of our day, all things considered, because you're, you're with the God of the universe who has saved you and loves you. And so I'm calling us to this lifestyle. And I'm also calling us to memorize, to do what it takes to memorize us. And if you're, if you're not a reader, you can listen to it online. Or you, This is one of the great things about technology, and it's a short list. But one of the great things about technology is that you can listen to the scripture read to you and just um, enjoy it that way. Calling us to memorize Romans 8, verses 31 through 39, so that we have it with us wherever we go. These, These are some of the best words in human existence. These sentences stacked on top of each other are some of the best words that any human being will ever hear or read or understand. And so if you're going to start somewhere, might as well start here. So I'm going to read from my Bible here, and you can read along. We're going to read this page. It's going to flip to the next one. We'll continue going. um, And then we'll come back to this page for the message today. Three, two, one. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, I just thank you so much for these true words. And Father, would you come, Lord? I need your spirit. I need you so badly for these times, Lord. I cannot do what needs to happen, Lord, that people would believe. I cannot make this happen. Father, the forces of darkness don't want us to believe. The fallen human heart does not want to believe this, Lord. And even the hopeful heart finds it difficult to believe how good you actually are. So God, I just commit, just confess, I cannot do this. But God, would you come and would you do the impossible? Would you cause sinners to truly be convicted of the truth of your word deep down into our soul, deeper than anything else can go so, go, so that these truths control and thrill and inflame and fill us full of joy and give us energy and strength and peace and quiet and contentment as we go about this life that you've given us in the times that you've given us with the ministries and callings that you've given us. God, I pray that you'd lift up the name of Jesus and that we would really see his glory through this message. God, I want to see Jesus. Show us Jesus. Father, show us Jesus. Show us the glory of your son, Jesus. And would you do this, Lord, because this is the mission you have been working on since the very beginning. Lift up your son. And Father, would you help us to know how you love him? I ask this for your name's sake. Amen. So our, our, our verse that we are going to be focusing on specifically today is verse 34, um, which starts with who is to condemn, and then says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And I'm going to try to just spend my time focusing on three things or asking three questions. Number one, why does Paul, as he's writing this through the Holy Spirit, kind of stop himself and transition from Jesus Christ is the one who died? Wait, more than that, who was raised. So why does he do that? So if you're speaking and writing and you say something and then that part in your head goes, huh, that's not quite exactly capturing what you need to say. And you stop and you backtrack and you kind of re address what you just said. That's what Paul's doing here. So why did he do that? I just make what? So he said, Jesus Christ is the one who died. Wait, that's not exactly what I need to say in order to keep saying what I want to say and communicate. Well, Jesus Christ is the one who died. Stop more than that, who is raised. So I want to talk about that. And then I want to talk about what it means for Christ to be at the right hand of God. And then I want to talk about the interceding part as well. And Lord willing, we'll all be able to do this before the people who come for the second service, start getting impatient with the message still happening. If you've been with us the last few weeks, we've been on this journey of going through Romans 8, and we've covered a lot of ground. 
and uh, it's been just so good. The great burden of this section of Scripture is to get Christians to really believe and to surrender to the truth that God really is for us in Jesus because he really loves us. That's the point. And because of that, we can look at life and say, I, I'm, I'm going to make it. And Paul says, more than just going to make it, you're actually more than a conqueror. We're going to get there. I haven't really even talked about that more than conqueror. You've got to save some of the good stuff for the end. You know what I mean? Like, you've got to save some stuff, and, and that can be requiring of self-control. But the big point of this message is that if we really get what God has done, if we really get that God is the holy God of the universe and the just judge who hates sin because sin is hatred towards God and he rejects human sin and punishes human sin but at the same time has decided to save sinners and did it by sending his own son in the flesh as a baby to die on the cross so that there be a perfect sacrifice that would absolutely calm God's just wrath against the world and absolutely satisfy this need for justice as well as to reconcile sinners to God and on top of that that he would send his spirit into the world to live inside of all of his children to change us from the inside out and to make us confess that God is our Abba Father and give us everything we need in this life until we see Jesus face to face if we really understand who God is because of what He's done. We have to, if we're going to be sane, we have to, if we're going to be just, we have to, if we're going to be rational, turn to God and say, wow, you're really for me and you really do love me. That's the great burden of this passage. And that anything less than looking to heaven and going into your prayer closet and starting off with, God, you're for me in Jesus. And you really love me and nothing can separate me from your love. Anything less than that is not getting it. There's something missing. Amen? That's the burden of this passage. If we get what God has done for us in Jesus, we have to say, I'm already leaning over the pulpit, which means the microphone isn't where it's going to be. But when, I, when I'm only three minutes into it and I'm already over, over the pulpit, you know it's going to be good. Anyhow, we have to say... God is for us. If we believe everything that's come so far, the first eight chapters or seven chapters, and if you want to read that for yourself, you can, but I've summarized it for you. What should we say to these things? If God is for us this much, and he is, who can be against us? What, what, what can you meet in a day? What can you meet when you wake up in the morning? What, what actually can happen to you if the God of the universe has already slain his perfect son, who he loves, has already given him up to death for us, and then given him to us? What will he hold back from us? What, what more can happen, either to prove that God is for us, or to actually rescue us in this life? And yet nothing, nothing more can be done. If you go into the storehouse of heaven right now, into the treasure chest, you know, you've been to the SCU recently, you know what a vault looks like, and you sneak into God's vault and you open the doors and you think, now I'm really going to find the goods. What do you find? There's nothing in there. Because all the treasure of heaven is Christ. And God has given us Christ. 
There's nothing left for God to give us. It's, 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 it's all in His Son. Can you understand why I'm like, we need to spend time with this Son every day, loving Him, enjoying Him through the Word. This is the best thing that can happen to us, is, is the gift of Christ. And we've got it. Amen? And so God, Paul's working through this thing. And then he says he needs to talk about being condemned. Because feeling condemned and believing we're condemned, and that sense of ongoing guilt and shame, which someone talked about in God's presence, for Paul, he knows, is going to be one of the things that keeps us from believing that God is really for us and loves us. How can God really be for me because I know how bad I am? How can God really love me in a way that I could never lose because I remember what that person said and this person said and how my dad treated me and my mom let me down and my teacher treated me and the people here and there and there. So how could it be true? I cannot believe that God is this for me because he is even more holy than these people and he knows everything about me when these people didn't know everything about me and they still rejected me. And so Paul has to deal with that feeling of condemnation. And so that's what we talked about last week where we were just saying, I was just saying, it is God who decides if you're just or not just. It is God himself who decides if you're condemned or not. And in Christ, you are not condemned. In Christ, you are just. just As a free gift, by grace, as a free gift, God takes all the righteousness of his son. And if you put your trust in Jesus as a free, unearned gift, bought and put together and assembled in somebody else's workshop and delivered to your door by Amazon.com with FedEx, it's yours for free. This is the glory of the gospel. You get to be righteous in God's sight as a gift for free. Free for nothing by faith. And then the call is, so don't leave, don't run away, don't betray, don't fall back. Keep close to Jesus and follow Jesus and serve Jesus. Be obsessed with Jesus. Be passionate about Jesus because you get it all as a free gift. Amen? Amen. And if you hear somebody who's like, yeah, I want the free gift. Thank you for the free gift. See you. Goodbye. Something's gone wrong there. The problem isn't their next sin, so that they're like kind of forgiven and not forgiven, kind of forgiven, not forgiven, kind of just and not just. The problem isn't their next sin, it's just they didn't get it. They didn't see. They didn't didn't actually see the glory of Jesus Christ. If you can come and then kind of be there for a bit and then walk away, the problem is you didn't see Jesus. You just heard a little something that made you feel good and then you go, but if you see Jesus, you're done. Amen? Okay, so we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Who is to condemn? So as Paul's talking about this, he says, who is to condemn? If God is the one who justifies, who is to condemn? So let's start talking about the first thing. He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. And as I understand it, how these things relate, he's like, who's actually going to condemn you? It was Christ Jesus who died. And this is just remembering from Romans chapter 3, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Okay, so Paul in the first two and a bit chapters is talking about how hopeless we are in ourselves. Because the human heart always wants to find something else besides the true God to give glory to and to trust. And because of that, God keeps handing people over to life apart from God. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. The less you want God, the less you get of Him, which means it's just easier to want something else. 
And everything without God is just poison. Everything without God is death. Slow death, creeping death. You know, one of the good things about zombie culture, you ever seen a zombie movie? And one thing I don't like about zombie I don't watch them anymore. Because all of a sudden there was a zombie movie where they could run, and I was like, that's not a zombie. It, that, that was the one. Besides all those nightmarish nights, sleepless nights growing up. The only good thing about zombie movies is they remind us that is what we are like without Christ. Stumbling around, stupid, looking for another human being to devour. With an appetite that will never be satisfied. That is life without Christ. Don't watch zombie movies. They're the worst. <laughs> Especially the ones where they run. It's just... No, it's okay. I'll, I'll do a blog post someday. Get it out of my system. But we're so just helpless. We're so helpless. Being under the wrath of God, there is no way out by human effort. And so Paul says... This is verse 21 of chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been revealed to us, has been shown to people apart from the law, God's standard of righteousness that we cannot keep. Although the law and the prophets bear witness about it, God's been telling us he was going to do something for a while. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short or lack the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, meaning the sacrifice that turns away God's wrath and gives us peace. By his blood, see, by his death, by his sacrifice, to be received by faith. That's what I think is going on when Paul is saying, who is to condemn? It's Christ Jesus is the one who died. Like the Son of God is the one who died as a sacrifice. Who can actually condemn when God has put forward His own Son as a sacrifice? It is stupid and ridiculous and impossible to think that if God Himself put His Son Himself on the cross as a sacrifice to make righteous and to put an end to our condemnation, there is nobody who can do anything about that. But Paul's trying to shift gears. He doesn't just want to talk about the death anymore. He has something to say that's beyond just the death of Christ. He wants to talk about the fact that he's still alive. And so he says, more than that, he was raised. Because the Jesus that we're dealing with is not a dead Jesus. Amen? The Jesus we're dealing with is not just a little baby born in a manger a thousand years ago. Somewhere else. And then died. Isn't that great? Isn't that sad? He's alive. And this is a good thing, because you want a living Jesus. Okay, I'm just going to let you know a little bit about myself, and you'll, hopefully you can still respect me. Um, one of the things about Robert Balfour is I don't like things that end. When I like something, I don't like it that it ends. And it expresses itself in weird ways. So sometimes people go on vacations to nice, warm, sunny places, and you're blessed to do that. But something weird about how Robert Balfour works is that I don't want to do that that much. Because you have to come home. Right? You're there for a week, you're there for two weeks, and then you come home, and everyone resents you for your tan, and then, but the tan, then the tan disappears. 
and then it's just a memory. I don't want memories. I want the thing that's wonderful. Does that make any sense? Okay, this is one of the reasons I saw this. this I first learned this about myself with books. Okay, I, I kind of like books. I don't, I'm not the biggest reader, but I like books. And one of the reasons I like books is that they don't go away. You buy it, you read it, you put it on the shelf, it's right there when you want it again. And if you, I used to read books so tenderly, I just barely opened them up. You couldn't tell anyone had read the book when I was done with it because I didn't want the book to change. Does that make any sense? Okay, well, I told you, you're, this is going to be your struggle. I've got to listen to the, the Bible from this freakazoid. This was the thing I was working on in my heart. When I loved something, I did not want it to go away. Does that make sense? Why would you want to have your best memories in a place you aren't? Why would you want to have your best memories with someone you're not with? What would be the point of being loved by Jesus who's dead? Romeo and Juliet. Worst love story ever. <laughs> oh, I love you so much. I'm going to drink poison. I love you too. I'm going to stab myself. You're dead. <laughs> and I know we're laughing, but this is serious. I hate a love that can end. I hate it. I know I'm weird, but I hate it. I hate that you can lose everything wonderful in this life. And some of you are going to hate Christmas because it's just going to remind you of what you've lost. Right? And I hate it. Which is why I love Jesus. You can't lose him because he's raised from the dead. His disciples already lost him before I was born. And it was the worst thing that happened. And they quit and they gave up and they left and they despaired. But then he was raised from the dead. And this is the amazing thing. And I think this is where Paul is going. I don't want to just talk about the glory of the cross where he died for your sins. I want to remind you he's alive right now and you cannot lose him. Right? And so what I, this point number one is, Christian... Love what you cannot lose. Love what you cannot lose. You cannot lose Christ because He's raised from the dead and He will raise you too. This is the hope of Christianity. If you get hit by a bus, I love talking about being hit by a bus in, in Steinbeck because we don't have buses. I'm never going to vote for a counselor who wants buses because I'll be like, all those times I said I'm going to get hit by a bus, it's going to happen. There's not a lot of buses. And I don't try not to drive when school's getting out. And uh, anyhow, if you get hit by a bus and you're in love with Jesus and he's your treasure, you don't lose him. You go to him. Philippians, I would rather depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. And when he comes back and he raises us from the dead, we don't lose him. We keep him more. And so this is what I think Paul is doing. He's saying... You're so not condemned, Christian, because God sacrificed Jesus Christ for you. He's the one who died, but wait, he didn't just die, and I don't want to talk about how he just died. He is raised from the dead. More than that, he's raised from the dead. Your justification has legs. 
and can be with you and love you and hold on to you. He's the only one ever who could show you that he loves you so much that he would die for you and yet is still alive to keep loving you. So point number one, love what you just cannot lose. And then go on vacation, but make sure you go with Jesus because he's the best part of Mexico. He's the best part of a sandy beach and being there with the Lord. That's Anyhow, Jackie and I did go traveling for our 15th anniversary. We just came back with a child. Um, That lasts. You know, that's me. I don't want to go to Europe unless I'm coming home with an orphan. Makes sense to me, maybe nobody else. So he's raised, okay? And so, and then the next thing Paul says is he doesn't want to just talk about that he's raised. He wants to talk about where he is. And so he says this line, and he's at the right hand of God, which is great, but we can kind of miss what's going on here. There's a lot going on. I don't want us to miss it. This isn't just about Paul saying, I've got the GPS tracker on the Lord. You know, there's this technology where you can put this little fob in your kid's pocket or their backpack and track where they are because they get lost or you're worried about them. And so if you're just saying, is Johnny really at the playground? You can pull it out and you can GPS it. Yeah, he is, but wait, he's leaving. He's heading to his friend's house, the friend with the Xbox. I knew it. I knew it. And then you phone the friend's house. Can you please send Johnny home? This is not just a case of where is Jesus. Okay. Saying that someone is at the right hand of God is shorthand for Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, so if you look in Hebrews, um, this is one of the quotations from Hebrews where it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies my footstool. It's from the Old Testament, from Psalm, Psalm 110. And so this is part of how they understood Christ. When he died... He was raised from the dead, and then he isn't just walking around the earth now. He went back to heaven, and he didn't just go back to heaven because it's nicer there. He went to heaven to enter the throne room, and then in the throne room to sit beside the throne of his father on his own throne at the right hand. And what I want to say is that this picture is supposed to convey to us that our raised Jesus is in the place of most honor and most access to power that there can be unless you are God the Father himself. So why do I say something like this? So let's go back to the Old Testament in 1 Kings and just see sitting at the right hand or being at the right hand in action, okay? So Solomon um, comes to the throne, David dies, Solomon's king, and he's sitting in his throne room, and there's this kind of this story going on where Solomon's older brother, Adonijah, he feels sorry for himself. He thought he was going to be the king, but he didn't for one reason or another. But he still kind of wants to play palace intrigue. And so he goes to Solomon's mom, Bathsheba, excuse me, and says, well, can you go ask Solomon if Abishag can be my wife, who used to be David's live-in nurse kind of thing. It's just palace politics, and maybe he'll say, if I'm married to David's ex-nurse, then I should be king, and then get an army behind him or something. And Bathsheba, for one reason or another, says, yeah, I'll go and ask Solomon for you. And so the details of the story aren't as important as what the Bible tells us how this scene works out. Okay, so this is 1 Kings 2, uh, verse 19. It says, so Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. 
And then he sat her on his throne. Sorry, then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. Then she said, I have one small request to make. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Make your, requ- your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. So at the beginning of this scene, we see a king who wants to show incredible honor to the person who's come into his throne room, even to the point of bowing down before her. And then at the end of this little scene, we see a king saying to a person, I will give you everything you ask me. Right? Honor and the king saying, you're going to get everything you ask for. And how does he physically display to the world that this woman in his presence is someone he wants to honor and do everything she asks? He sits her at his right hand while he sits on the throne. Can you picture it in your head? Bathsheba sitting at the right hand of Solomon is Solomon's way of telling the whole world, I honor her and I will do whatever she asks. Whenever she wants something, all she has to do is turn her head a little bit and ask while I sit in my glory. And this is what, when Paul says in Romans 8, see if I can find it again, took up my bookmark. When he says... Christ is at the right hand of God. It is shorthand for saying Jesus Christ has been seated at the right hand of God the Father so that everyone will know that God is giving Jesus unlimited honor and so that Jesus will get everything he asks the Father for. That's the point of that little line. Where is Jesus right now? Exactly where he gets everything he wants from his Father. And his father is sitting on the throne of heaven, which is where you can get anything. It's the highest place of authority. It's the highest place of power. It's the throne above every throne. It's the place where the will of God is dispensed from and done. And the angels come and go to do his bidding. And world history is controlled. That's where Christ is. Are you with me this far? What is Jesus doing on this throne? this seat right beside the Father in His power and authority and glory. It's right here. What's He doing? Yeah, He's praying for us. What would you do if you were seated at the right hand of a throne and you could ask for anything you wanted? Um, Can we talk about that Lambo? The pastoral Lambo? Anything you want, Rob. Can it be read? Jesus is praying for us. This is one of those thoughts that changes people forever. The Son of God, what is He doing in heaven? Is He making a list and checking it twice? Is He, is he going to find out if you're naughty or nice? So is he winnowing every part of you with his fiery, harsh gaze? If you're his church, he's praying for you. He leans over to the throne of unlimited power and authority and glory and says, Rob's actually going to need a lot of help today, Dad. Dad. 
let's move into the Gospels for a second to a place where we actually have a record of Jesus having prayed to his Father. He prayed to him lots. This isn't the only place, but this is an encouraging thing to remember. On the last night of Jesus' life, he, he has the Lord's Supper where the disciples meet together and Judas goes off to betray Jesus and he's about to be arrested and crucified. And you might remember that Jesus begins to tell his disciples how they're going to betray him. And they don't totally believe him. But in Luke, we get recorded this really interesting statement from Jesus. It's in chapter 22, starting verse 31, where Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. That's a frightening thought. That he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned, again, strengthen your brothers. I'll read that one more time. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned, again, strengthen your brothers. Peter doesn't quite take in everything Jesus says, as we, were, we probably wouldn't either. But just think about this scene. Okay, here's Jesus, and he's revealing to Peter supernatural knowledge. Like, who knows what Satan is doing from one minute to the next, specifically? Who knows what kind of conversation Satan has had with God the Father? Who knows what kind of claims Satan is making on a human life from one moment to the next? Nobody but Jesus. But Jesus has some kind of insight. He, he knows something's coming down the pipe. I'm not exactly sure what the whole sifting like wheat means. Like in the, in the ancient times, they would take wheat grain and they would fling it up in the air in a windy place and the chaff would get blown out. And so I don't know if this means like Satan just wants to prove that Peter doesn't believe or if Satan's trying to actually ask to destroy Peter. But what we do know happens that Peter really does deny Christ and really does abandon his walk with Christ. But just, why, why did Peter make it even after his failure in the courtyard where he denied Christ? Why does Peter make it and come back and end up being an apostle? Why is Peter's failure before the cross not the last word on his life? But I have prayed for you. That's why. How come Peter made it? But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Meaning like you don't go so down into despair that you are unresponsive and hard-hearted and never turn back. Guys, but I have prayed for you. Satan demanded you, but I have prayed for you. Satan demanded to have you, but I have prayed for you. That's why Peter is an apostle. And made it. And, and wrote some books in the Bible. That's the whole reason. Ultimately. Ultimately, that's the whole reason. Peter. Satan demands to have you. And by all rights, you should belong to him. But I have prayed for you. That your faith will not fail. Therefore, when. Not if. When. You return. Strengthen your brothers. Not if. When. 
And this is Jesus on the earth. He's in heaven now in his glory. So it's not ever if when Jesus asks for something from his dad, it's always when. Amen? So how are we supposed to deal with this? Christian, we're supposed to wake up into the morning, in the morning into a world. If you're like me, you wake up discouraged every morning. That's just my cross to bear for right now. I pray about it. Sometimes it's better. Sometimes it's worse. But I wake up into a world every single day where Jesus has prayed for me. Every single day. Where he has turned to the Father of glory, the Father of righteousness, and said, Dad, you know how you gave me Rob? Yeah. He really is going to need some grace today. Don't, don't let his faith fail. And uh, make sure that he, he turns again and has an okay sermon on Sunday. Something like that. Amen? This is our life, church. Human history is ruled over by Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, turning to his Father for the sake of the church. This is, this is the biggest thing ever. You know, Christians, we're sometimes humble in the wrong ways, right? We can be humble about some of our accomplishments. We should not be humble about who we are. We are what human history is about. Jesus turns to his Father, not so much so that the economy is really great in 2019, or so that the iPhone XX can come out faster. He turns to his Father and says, don't let Calvary Chapel die. Instead, turn them back to the faith and let them really do the call to glorify me that you want them to do dead. Don't let this person be lost. Don't let Satan have that person. I pray for them so that even though they will go through the fire, and church, we will go through the fire, and you have been through the fire, and it may happen again, even though Satan will take a run at us, all of our hope is that Jesus is asked for us to make it. And his, do- his dad does not say no. Except for one time. There was one time his dad said no. Where Jesus asked. If there's any other way besides the cross. Can, I, can we go that way? But I still submit to you. And his dad said no to that one prayer. The only time in human history. Where that will ever happen. Amen. And I don't want to miss this. God, Jesus is, we're supposed to just to be like, God is for me. One of the reasons we are meant to be convinced that God is for me and convinced that God really loves me is that right now Jesus is praying for us. This is, the band can start kind of getting ready. They're not called up yet, but you're going to need to be ready to be ready to be ready. This, this is a thing. What other God does this? What other world could you even imagine better than this? Where Jesus who died for you in love was raised for you in love and is right now praying for you in love that you'll make it. And this is kind of how election works. It's not just about flipping switches in heaven. He prays for us because we're not going to make it. Here's the right kind of humility. I will not make it unless Jesus intervenes. That's what an intercession is. It's an intervention. It's like, if things go along like they are going along, disaster. But I will ride out. I will move. I will ask. I will intervene. I will change things so that they don't go the way they would go. And this is part of our hope in life. This is why we can take risks. This is why we can do risky things. Because we know that Jesus is praying for us and He is able to intervene to change how things would go even if we're making a mistake. 
but walking by faith. Amen? I don't know. I, I don't. Come on, guys. And I love you. And we got to get this. He's praying for us. He's praying for our Christmas. He's praying for our family members that we don't even have the hope to hope for. We can ask him and say, Jesus, would you do something? And I know this, is, this isn't the most biblical prayer, but I do every once in a while. Father, Jesus, would you just turn to the Father and just pray for this? Whatever you want. You don't have to only pray like that, but if, if the picture helps your faith, do it. He's sitting beside his dad. And the scars that bought your life are on his hands. Jesus, just turn to your dad. And I know he loves me and he'll listen to me too, but just lean in and ask for whatever you want about this situation because you'll get it. And thank you for praying for me. This is the craziest thing ever. He's praying, he's praying, he's praying, he's praying for us and each one of us. This is just another layer of grace. He didn't just set up the roller coaster ride of grace that you sit down in. He prays for us that it'll work. This is amazing. Okay, so what's the application? I've been talking to you about it already. Um, I, don't you just want to be obsessed with Jesus? That's right. Amen. Like as I, the further I get into this, it's like I just, I can't live not obsessed about Jesus anymore. If He's this good, and it really is all about Him, I need to be obsessed with Him. I need to be like obsessed with Christ. He really is everything. And he's praying. Because he wants me. Like, when I go to my pr- prayer time to be with Jesus, it's like, we now entering, enter this prayer time already in progress. Oh yeah, come on, come on, Rob, let's pray to the Father. I was just asking for... He is so gracious, so loving. He could just sit there demanding things. You know who he's demanding things from? His dad. How amazing is this? So, let's be obsessed with Jesus. This is be in the Bible every day. Why? So we can be obsessed with Jesus. Why should we memorize Romans eight thirty one? That sounds like a work. Not about works. You do it so you can be obsessed with the God who deserves all of our obsession and all of our passion, and not just so that we can look around being like, I was at Passion nineteen ninety two or whatever it was. It was like because. It's the best life to believe all these truths. That He's so for us and loves us beyond anything bad that can happen to us and in the midst of everything is praying that we would get through it well. This is the best life to be obsessed with Jesus, whatever's happening. Amen? Yeah, that's right. Come on. Let's do it, Jared. Come on. This is the Calvary Chapel. What a bunch of nut jobs. We want to be obsessed with Jesus. It's the whole story. That's all. That's all. It's the best life. It has to be. If God is like this, to be obsessed with Him must be the best thing. And to be with Him must be the best thing. And the privilege to serve Him 
must be the best thing. This Christ who, even after his sufferings, goes to heaven to pray for us and intercede for us and to work for us in heaven. It must be the best thing. Amen? So why don't we pray and praise and sing whomever among the band wants to lead us. Guys, let's try to do something really impossible. Let's try to become more obsessed with Jesus and consumed by Jesus without making it about our effort, but to try to get it by grace as a free gift. Does that make any sense? Let's ask God to actually keep making us more passionate and devoted and obsessed with Jesus in a way that, that we don't even, we're not trying to do it. But we're looking for it as a free gift from Jesus who is going to ask for us to get it from the Father. Does that make any sense? doesn't totally need to. We can just ask and let God sort it out. So I just want to invite people to stand. You don't have to stand. Not everybody's blessed by standing. But if you just want to show God, this is amazing that Jesus is praying for me. And I, I really want to be all consumed by, the, by Christ in this life. Why don't you stand with me? This is my heart. This is my desire.